1: They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots
2: today. Welcome to DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysun, the unique blend of hunting, conservation and the outdoor lifestyle delivered in an entertaining, informative fashion that only a veteran outdoorsman can do. DSC's Campfires is brought to you by DSC, conservation, education, and hunter advocacy. Hornady, accurate, deadly, dependable. Trigicon, brilliant aiming solutions. Taurus, makers of the Raging Hunter handgun. Burnham Brothers game calls, double nickel taxidermy. Now here's your host, Larry Wisu.
0: Welcome to the DSC Campfire. This is another great opportunity to spend time with some of the most fantastic people in the world that I get to spend time with, either in person or sometimes over a phone or some other mechanical type of different uh, conveyance, if you will. But this today, we are very special. Just, I'm thrilled to have this gentleman on. His name is Mike Arnold, and Mike recently wrote a book called "Bringing Back the Lines." Before we started the uh, the program this morning, we were talking a little bit about some of the places, and I found out that Mike is originally from Texas and from Abilene, Texas, where I spent quite a bit of time years ago as a wildlife biologist with the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. Mike, welcome to the campfire. I am so thrilled to have you here. I've had a chance to spend a little time with your book, bringing back the lines, and I want to get to that in a little bit. But I want to know a little bit about your background, since we mentioned you're from Abilene area of Texas. What? T- how did all this get started?
3: Larry, thank you so much for having me on the show. This is this is a wonderful opportunity. Well, how it got started was my dad. Uh, daddy was. Uh, A Hunter he was a hunter all his life Uh, he wasn't from Texas he was one of those Yankees he was from Mason City Iowa but he had moved to Texas and he had married my mom and she was from Memphis Tennessee so she hunted a little bit uh, but it was really mostly my dad he was a shooter and a hunter um, I took my. I mean, we we wandered around. I was mentioning to you, we had thousands of acres of oh, right. our house, and uh, we wandered around and hunted and fished. And Daddy taught us how to be safe with firearms. And I actually took my first white-tailed deer near San Saba uh, as I was five years old. All right, uh, it was a doe, <laughs> and I shot off a of daddy's shoulder, crawling a little bitty two forty-three. Is probably why. I Poor daddy was deaf in that right ear, I think, <laughs> because he let me shoot off his shoulder all the time. So that's how it started. My dad my dad got my brother and I both into hunting and shooting, and I had never looked back. I just love it.
0: I think that's the way several of us got started, and I wish more people could get started that way in these days where we are. But uh, tell me a little bit about, you now live in Georgia, and you're involved in the past, at least been involved with quite a bit of research with genetics. Is that what I understand?
3: That is, that is correct, actually. I'm a professor in the Department of Genetics here at University of Georgia. In um, actual fact, I'm the head of the department. For at least an interim time period, we're trying to get a permanent head in, but I'm head of department. I tell people I went insane and said, yeah, I'll do that. But uh, (laughs) I actually have wonderful colleagues, but I have always worked, I've always loved genetics trying to figure out what genes work well in certain environments and what kind of animals and plants and even fungi are growing in certain places and why genetically and so i've been doing this it really fits real well with the fact that i love being out outside rather than in a lab or whatever so we do lab work obviously if we're going to do sequencing of genomes which we do but it's it's mainly i love what i get to do because i get to be out in nature
0: one of the things that I realized very quickly in looking at your book and reading your book is that y- you have a passion for the outdoors, which just now you <laughs> explained kind of why, but uh, I think that's a big part of, of what we get to do, such as what you do and what I've been able to do as a wildlife biologist and, and, and some sure. of the things I've been involved in, is we have a true passion for wildlife, and that includes a lot of different facets, as you just mentioned, from from the gene side of things. Generally, the things that I've done start kind of at the the ground, and and, uh, in a way, you're right, even there, vegetation, as you mentioned, the fungus type thing, but vegetation, uh, there's certain genetic types that do well in certain soils and certain uh, rainfall situations, certain weather, so that's pretty basic when you get right down to it.
3: It it really is and it's fun to um, mix that together. I know you do this. I mean I've read you for years and so I know you do this. You explain to us why certain animals and plants are in certain areas and what we should be looking for as hunters and so it gives us a lot of keys as well you know as you know it gives us some indications hey this is a good site for x y or z and so for hunting and so i I, you know just keeping our eyes open uh, so many hunters are intuitive larry you know they don't think about it necessarily like a biologist like you or I do, but they're intuitive, right? They, they're they better than I am. They'll notice things and go, this is a good area for X. And I have a buddy like that in South Carolina, you know, and he ended up getting me a bobcat when we were predator hunting because he knew what habitat to go to. He, he knew intuitively where the darn thing should be. And, and I looked at it and went, it looks the same to me <laughs> as what we've been honeyed, but it wasn't. So I, I love that. I love that about hunters. So.
0: I, I do, too. I've told people I've made my living over the years teaching people what they already knew. And basically, <laughs> that's kind of the same thing. as What you just were talking about there is I think so very many people there is – as something innate that uh, yep. if you give it a chance and you have that ability to want to continue to learn, I think it kind of comes up to the forefront a little bit quicker, maybe in those situations. But I agree. Uh, yeah. Th- th- life is interesting, and, and life is an education, and, and obviously from your book and a little bit we visited earlier, uh, I think you're the same way. I, I can't wait to go someplace to learn something new, and it seemed like every day that I do any of those kind of things, even at home. Uh I continually learn, and, and that to me is one of the great things about hunting, the wildlife conservation side of things. I've
3: really, you know, it's every time, and you know, I can go sit on the same darn deer stand, and you know, on, on the deer lease that I've been sitting on for a decade, and I'll notice something different. And, you know, I'll hear something different. I'll see something different. And I maybe I'm not too observant, but I think it's because, you know, it's so complex out there that we always will learn something if we just keep our eyes open.
0: Keep our eyes open and our ears listening. As you
3: just mentioned. <laughs> well, with my hearing, I have to have those electronic <laughs> earplugs in. But that's—I—I I agree with you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let, let's talk as, as we're moving forward. Let's let's talk about Africa. What got you interested in going to Africa for the very first time?
3: well I, this is going to sound uh maybe a little bit uh morbid for a moment so you're gonna have to bear with me. absolutely so i was i was diagnosed with stage four cancer back in 2017 and i was given a year to live uh you might notice we're talking right now and i'm not a ghost <laughs> so yes yeah, sure. I, I always say that my poor medical oncologist is the saddest person in the world every time I walk <laughs> through that door because I'm ruining her data. But I, I was given, I was I was sick as a dog. You know, I'd had just, just like poor folks who, you know, have cancer. I mean, yeah, sure. I'd had a wonderful life and there's a lot worse off folks than me. Okay. But anyway, I'd had a couple of surgeries and a bunch of chemotherapy and that sort of thing. And my brother called me one day and he, he, he's my older brother and he's he was always taking care of me when i was a kid and he he could tell i was sick as a dog and he said let's go hunting," and because he knew that would uh you know planting that sort of thing would lift my spirits and i said you know that's wonderful and he said let's go out west because we love hunting in western north america and always will and and i said you know you've been to Africa. I've never been to Africa. Do you think if I could get well enough that we could plan a trip to Africa? And that's what we did. And we got over there in 18. I got healthy enough or strong enough where i could sort of make it up hills and that sort of thing by then I, poor ph felt like he was gonna have to carry me up <laughs> some of those hills i think that uh at where we were hunting for some of the mountain species but he didn't he didn't end up having to do that but that's how i got there and then i've been back and back and back and back but it's it's been relatively recent 2018 was the first time i went so now I've gone every year since then, and multiple times. But uh, for the book, but that's that's how I got started, and even wrote an article about it. And I said, look, I I know that the doctors and God are the ones that really healed me, but the hunting really lifted my spirits. Really getting out into nature and out in the outdoors. So so anyway, that's that's what happened uh, to get me to Africa. So.
0: Well, it it got you there, and apparently it's keeping you, (laughs) wanting to go back as well, too, which is absolutely fantastic. That trip over, we were talking before we started this a little bit, that trip seems to get longer and longer every time I go. And and, uh, (laughs) uh, sometimes it's 13 hours or 17 hours, but a lot of times they're 20 hours, whatever it is, but a lot of times it seems like twice that long. But uh, I understand you're going back, and I want to come back to that here in just a little bit. But let's talk about the book. You, You mentioned it, and it's called, the title of it is Bringing Back the Lions, and International Hunters, Local Tribesmen, and the Miraculous Rescue of a Doomed Ecosystem in Mozambique. And um, tell me a little bit about what caused you to write that book. And then let's talk a little bit about some of the things you talk about inside of it as well, too. Okay. Well, uh, the the start
3: of thinking about it, you know, about the book started in twenty. 20- 20-ish, I guess, which is not a a good year for any of us (laughs) right now to think back on. But it really even started earlier than that. What I did was I'm into conservation biology, and so that's part of my work, and I travel around the world talking about conservation genetics and things like that. Well, I wanted to link conservation biology that I knew – To uh, hunting models and to folks who conserve, especially in developing countries, but conserve in those countries just like we have with the Pittman Robertson Act here. Okay, through shooters and hunters. So what I wanted to do was to do to do that. I chose to speak to a set of shareholders, if you will, uh, that are in Mozambique. Mark Haldane, who. People know pretty well. I mean, he's he's sort of a legend in our field. He's an outfitter in Katata 11, which is what the book is based around. And so I interviewed Mark. I interviewed Ivan Carter, who's another conservation biologist hunter. I interviewed Dan Cabello. um, And all of those guys were invested in, one way or another, in Katata 11. So this hunting concession in Mozambique. And I also interviewed Jamie Trout because I went over there in 2020, actually, when Namibia was open, and it was basically the only country open, <laughs> yeah. and I had leopard with him and, and some other species. So I interviewed him about conservation and COVID and that sort of thing. So I put out a series of articles, and then I asked Mark Haldane if he thought it would be possible for me to visit for well, months, and write a book about what they did. And initially he was resistant to it because he thought it would be too much of a focus on him, which tells you a lot about the man. Yes, sir. <laughs> that he's humble. But I said, no, no, I, 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 it will talk about you. Obviously it has to. But it, uh, I wanted to get into the nitty-gritty of the local folks who were there, the Santa villagers, and also just just to interview the heck out of folks and look at schools and look at clinics and, you know, and just learn about the place. So that's how it got started. Then we went over twice for extended periods. I say we, my wife and I went over for extended periods last year. And uh, we went the first time in May uh, and then turned around and came back in July and just spent weeks and weeks there and, and, looking around and trying to understand the place and figure out what was going on and that's that's how how it came about
0: Mark Yaldane, we've, we've been supporters of his through his the great efforts mm-hmm. that he does. He, to me, is the the perfect example of what everybody ought to be doing in Africa, as far as I'm concerned. But we have supported him in every way that we could through the DSC Foundation, where I serve on a, as a, a member of the Board of Directors. And, of course, some of our chapters, such as the one in Lubbock, have provided monies for him as well, too. And Unfortunately, conservation costs. And so organizations such as uh, DSC and SCI and, and others do an absolutely fantastic job in helping. And all that comes about because it's because hunters care when you get right down to it, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, some of the things that Mark Haldane has done, let's, let's get into that a little bit. I'm, he, he does a fantastic job as far as the, the local people and as far as poaching and things like that. And then I want to go go back from, from there. Let's, let's talk about actually bringing back the lines. But what are some the things that mark has been doing over there that really has been working for him to bring that Katata 11 to where it is probably the finest place in all of africa
3: you know there is um a quote from the first very first thing they had to do, uh, all of these folks you know and and you have to do in any area honestly to start restoring an area and we have to remember that this area was devastated by the civil war, Yes, yeah, you know, sure. it was fifteen years long and and they had a meat packing plant they're in the maromeo complex which Katata 11 sits in and the reason they did the rebels did and the reason they did was it was so game rich i mean with hundreds of thousands of animals there they knew it you know the locals knew it and so to feed their uh, the rebel army they set up a meat packing area processing area, and then they just wiped out everything. There yeah. wasn't much left standing oh my gosh you know you you end up with something like eight zebra you know out of thousands of zebras before two hundred and fifty water buck out of twenty five thousand to forty thousand waterbuck before the civil war so given that there weren't any animals there. Mozambique has the highest, one of the highest malnutrition rates, especially in, in little ones, in, yes. in children. 46%, I guess, is what NIH says. Oh my so that, that's still there. Okay, that's there today. So when Mark went in, Mark and his, his colleagues went in, that would have been there. Malnourishment was a reality amongst the, the few folks who were who were still there. Uh, Quashacore, you know, that swollen belly and the little ones that yeah, you sure. see on, you know, in films and, and photographs. That would have been there. The first order of business was to start getting protein to the people, okay, because that does two things. Number one, malnourishment starts to go down and now it's zero. They don't have malnourishment in Katata 11 because they pass out so much meat and they have a fishing program. So those are two things. The meat comes from trophy hunting though and the fishing program is something that they set up. So the animal protein now means that there's not a malnourished person in Katata 11. And surrounding them right now, you'd still have 46% of the folks basically starving to death because of lack of protein so that was step one if you will but then the suppression of poaching at the same time and starting out that meant that they were pulling out the gin traps and yes. and wire snares but then they started putting in anti-poaching units who were made up of Former poachers—they do where the poachers (laughs) would go. Exactly. Yes. So Mark has hundreds of people he employs now, but it was a slow process. So the first thing, though, in terms of community. Uh, interaction well Ivan Carter has a saying and I actually used it for a, I was asked to do two TEDx talks which are the weirdest requests I've <laughs> ever had in my life I'll be honest but I love doing it And it was on conservation through hunting I said to him you do know I kill stuff right yeah, I, and they said <laughs> yeah 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 we understand you're a hunter but anyway so but one of those talks I called it I entitled it. Uh, one of Ivan's quotes and that was hungry bellies have no ears yes and what he means by that is that if your children are hungry or if you're hungry you're gonna poach you're just gonna poach you're gonna poach to provide them food and I think that's understandable uh, tragic, but I think it's understandable. Yes, so it Mark's done that. Uh, they put in agric- a huge agricultural field that is, you know, has been supported by all of us hunters going over the tractor and the plow were were bought by a chapter, Michigan chapter of SCI, and like you've said. DSC has also put huge amounts of money into the foundation has put large amounts of money so that they have a helicopter fleet so that they can keep poachers out and spot them when they need to, but also do game counts and all sorts of stuff. So his his work with the local folks started there. They've now put schools in, a school in. They've built teacher's housing. Uh, so that they have permanent teaching staff. They have a clinic that is has a permanent uh, staff member who passes out medicine. When we were there in May of last year, he I asked him, uh, the clinician, and he had given out 1,000 doses to cure people of malaria. Malaria is not killing people in, Mos- uh, in Katata 11 like it does across all of Mozambique. Once again, yes. Mozambique has one of the highest mortality rates for malaria but not in Katata 11 and once again it's it's all hundred dollars people i mean it, it, it's donations maybe a big chunk of it is donations from dallas safari club foundation but that's still hundred dollars
0: yes it is and
3: it's, it's not an ngo you know i, I laughed uh because I thought I was doing a zoom for one of the podcasts, and I said to the guy it's there's no Bill Gates money in there, and he said, "I hope not and I said well I, <laughs> I said, "Well, I don't really have anything against the poor guy, but I said you know it's it's not like that, it's all hundred dollars you know that's where the money's coming from."
0: It, it is, and, and that's so very important. I think it's a message that needs to be gotten out more and more all the time. And, unfortunately, sometimes the general public media kind of overlooks those kind of things <laughs> very yeah. readily. And, and, uh, but the, the, the fortunate thing is it is $100. Uh, it's often been said that if wildlife has value, there will be wildlife. And yeah. that's really kind of something that's come to the forefront here, too, within that Katata 11 area.
3: It it really is. I mean, the value of, it has to have a value, the animal, whatever animal it is, has to have a value above its protein. I mean, that's as a food source. And and that's really what it amounts to. And the locals, uh, the local Santa villagers have bought into that model because they see, hey, we're being fed from this, this industry that's here, this, this hunting industry and We have improvements in our quality of life, not past the food. You know, our kids are being educated. We have a clinic we can go to, you know, and there's this infrastructure of farming. We're being able to make money so they have disposable income. And there's, you know, the model works. It works for them.
0: It has worked absolutely fantastic, and hopefully more and more we will adapt that model that's being done there. Let's talk a little bit about bringing back the lions. Why would would somebody want to bring back the the largest predator in all of Africa into an area that's a very wildlife-rich area?
3: Well, and and some have, uh, including myself, have doubted. Mark Sanity and uh, <laughs> his his partner Sanity. We give him an awful hard time because I stopped to it. We're sitting around the campfire one night, and I said, "You know, you just reported that a sable bull worth and it's worth a lot of money to a hunter. Yes, yeah, sir. Sure. Just got nailed by a lion." He said, "Yeah." I said. um you know, the lion probably found him to be tasty, but that's not <laughs> real good for your economics. And he said, Look, Mike, it's, it's the cost of restoring an ecosystem. So yes. why did they bring him back? Well, because Mark has a passion. Carlos Faria, his partner, who's not a hunter, by the way, or oh, a really? either. What? Yeah, he sees, you know, he. I asked Carlos. Carlos is actually the one that bought the. Or he's from Port. Uh, he's from Mozambique. He's the one who actually bought Katata Eleven, at, you know, or purchased yeah. the lease from the government. Even before it was before the peace accord had been signed, and his friends thought he was nuts, but he knew <laughs> he he's in. He's in um, recreational and like hotels and all sorts of kinds of businesses. And he knew that this was the, when he talked to hunters, that this had been the gem of hunting yes. uh, Katata 11 in Mozambique, you know, back in the 50s, 60s, that time, that, but that time period before the Civil War. But anyway, yeah, so, you know, I asked him about this and they said, well, look we want to restore the ecosystem to the ecosystems yes to what they were pre-modern humans now my big question i'll be honest was why in the world would the saint of villagers be okay with this because mark didn't just drop they didn't just drop these lions in without talking about talking to people and so they went to the locals and said look this is this is something we would like to do, but we need your okay for this. Yes. We need to know that you're all right with this. And the Santa villagers came back and said, and, and this is part of their belief system, okay? And they said, you know, we've lost two chiefs. We believe that they become spirit lions, and they need real lions to walk with to protect us and so oh, cool. there was actually a religious basis as much as anything else now the lions are uh, for the saint of villagers to say yeah this is this is a good thing but i will say too that mark and uh his colleagues are very Intentional as to where those lions can be, yes. and the Santa Villagers are centralized because they're around the clinic and the school and the agricultural fields and all the other infrastructure park is built up. They all move there, so the the lions are actually distant to uh, to where any human populations actually are. Yes, sir. so there's a they're also collared, so they know they know where yes. they are if they start <laughs> getting closer to those villages.
0: One of the things, that I know that the Cabela family has been very instrumental in, in helping with this, and I've had the pleasure of knowing Miss Mary and, and also Dan and, and a bunch of their people over the years as well, too. And and to me, the, the, it was such a great thing for them to do, to be one of the primary backers behind this. Where, where did those lines come from, and, and how far did they move those lines? Because I can't remember at the moment.
3: No, no, that's fine. They came from six different sites. I guess it was six. Six separate sites. They wanted to do, you know, once again as a geneticist, I get this. They wanted them to be as variable as they yes. could. They all came from South Africa. And so they collected them into a centralized BOMA. Situation in uh, enclosure area in South Africa, and then flew them to Mozambique Uh, with the lions. They anesthetized them. Uh, One of them started coming awake in the plane, and I would have just gone (laughs) ahead and jumped out. Uh, But they were (laughs) that's with them. Apparently, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall.
0: Oh, amen. Uh, Me too. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to see people's eyes.
3: Uh, Can you imagine the poor pilots can't go anywhere, you know, but anyway, so, uh, but they got them in there safely. There were 24 of them. Uh, there are uh, – I checked with Mark the other day because I was interviewed for a, another article, and I checked with Mark uh, yesterday or day before yesterday, and he said they're north of 80 now. So that's after really? four years. Yeah, after four years. I wrote a sports field article saying now there are 60. That was last – you know, that was the year before. Yes, and sir. So I remember that one. <laughs> they, they are – yeah, they are really – They're really reproducing. Uh, They are going to have a wonderful population of those guys. Now, they eat a lot. I will say that. You know, they have to have a lot of biomass. But they are hoping to be able to use them to restock other areas as well. So...
0: That's really cool. I've had the opportunity. I've been on a couple of different lion hunts uh, up in the the far north country, like in Burkina Faso, and and, uh, mm-hmm. and uh-huh. I've also I've seen the lions, of course, in South Africa and a few other places. We were on the South Conservancy a couple of years ago, and and we were within sight of lions there just about every day, as well as leopards. And there wasn't the a day that I was not on that particular property that we did not see leopards. But uh, hopefully, and there's a great population of game there. To, as a matter of yeah. fact, on top of everything else, so it's not like they're they're eating themselves out of house and home. So, but there are more areas. I'm sure they're in Mozambique and and of course other areas too that could be where lions could very successfully be reintroduced with uh, the proper care from the locals. I would I would assume that would be a big part of that, just as what it was there in Mozambique.
3: It it really is. I mean, there are a lot of you know, and some are parks and some are. Uh, hunting concessions, summer, you know, you name it. And they really, the lion's range, as you know, as a biologist, the lion's range, like anything else, has shrunk dramatically. And it's its yeah, not it's because important. of hunting, obviously. It's its because of habitat loss. But there are... There are Huge areas in, in mozambique the mozambique government 's one of the most progressive in this there 's and what it is twenty six percent of their land mass they 've set aside as wild areas so so there 's a lot of space to move these move these lions once they get to a certain point uh, but I, I will say one thing too because we 're talking about hunting. Uh, the intention, as far as I know, is they will hunt the lions. You know, older males that are outside of prides once they have a um, a certain size population in Katata Eleven. I mean, and that will bring in conservation dollars like crazy because that's one of the more more expensive hunts you can possibly do. They didn't hunt the, you know, obviously the, the initial twenty four. That was the deal. no, no, no. They're no. not hunting. They're not hunting them now because they want to let the population get larger. And And also, they need the males to get older and outside of prides. But but that is, you know, I want to throw that out there. There's nothing wrong with it. In fact, there's everything right with it uh, biologically if they, and conservation-wise, once they're able to start that.
0: Interesting. You, your background is a geneticist. So why would it be important to take some of those older males out once they get kicked out of the pride or or maybe in a situation where you have almost an overpopulation of, of male lions?
3: Well, and, it you know, the, the thing about it is for lions with their biology, obviously, once the males are outside of the pride, they're not contributing. To any, they've already contributed all their genetics. It's like an old... You know, it's like anything old. Yes, or right. So, <laughs> well, you don't need that many old men around. Just, just ask my wife. So, uh, the, or the mine. About, <laughs> but the thing about it is, what that will do, and and one of the other guys who I wrote a chapter in there, the wildlife veterinarian, Zhao Almeida, he's not a hunter. Never has hunted. Never will hunt. Doesn't have any desire to, but he said, I hope that people will visit Mozambique and shoot old male lions who are not in, you know, hunt old male lions who are not in prides for the $150,000 they charge. He said that conservation, those conservation dollars go straight back into the local uh, communities and straight back into lion conservation and other things, in, into conservation. So removing them does nothing in terms of, like, reproduction or anything else because they're not reproducing anymore. Right. So you're either going to let them w- lay down and die, and there's $150,000 that could have gone into conservation. And also, it's the joy of hunting. I Look, you know, I know folks don't get it, but hunters love to hunt. And so there's, you know, some people don't want to hunt lions. I I, personally, I don't have a great desire to do it. I love hunting cats, but I like them to be a little bit smaller. (laughs) (laughs) So that maybe they wouldn't eat me if I mess up. And uh, so, you know, uh, seriously, though... There's no impact. That's what Zhao Almeida pointed out. He said, there's no impact. We know this as biologists. It's not going to impact negatively the lion populations if we remove an old male or if he dies, you know, one way or the other. So.
0: Well, as you mentioned, too, there's a huge amount of dollars that can be pumped back into the uh, the, the, the local economy, if you will, or the, 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 the movement maybe of lions to a new area as well, exactly. the, where they have yep. been exportated in the past. So that hunting plays such an important role of it. Unfortunately, we have some people in our government that don't quite understand the the fact that we need to be able to import those lines back here to make (laughs) conservation work and pay for so many different other things. As as a biologist, too, one of the things that I've done over the years is I've worked with a lot of different properties where there was not a whole lot of management going on to begin with. And once we started a good wildlife management program, maybe say for whitetail deer or mule deer elk or bighorn sheep or whatever it's that the habitat is what benefited more than anything else and as a result of that you had a lot more variation in species of plants and as a result of that you had a greater population of different species everything from the bugs on up kind of thing and and i'm sure the same thing is going on there in in Africa as well too they're in that Tod 11 and several other places where they're doing some really good work as far as wildlife habitat and wildlife management is concerned
3: well it, the, that was the amazing thing to me is and you would have you would have seen this at the book so one of the things uh, mark Haldane it loves bird watching
0: yes that's where I was going with this
3: <laughs> and I do too I actually do I, I love you know i got into that we lived in australia for 6 years and and boy they have some beautiful parrots and stuff and i got really got into bird watching and so when i was over there you know i was talking to mark and i said what else do you do you know in terms right. of bringing people in here he said oh we we bring in bird watching groups after the hunting season's over i said you have got to be kidding me i said the, i said most of the birders i know are not not really into hunting very much and he said oh no he said we do get a few anti-hunters but he said because of the conservation here we have i think they have over 300 species of birds and and some are really actually only found there and the reason they're there because Mm -hmm. of the (laughs) anti-poaching conservation
2: restoration that they've
3: done and the the these these songbirds and every other kind of bird you know that you can imagine are there they've moved in because the habitats are there, and it once again, I hate to harp on it, but it's all $100. It's not the bird watchers, although they bring some money in. But they are just thrilled to be able to be there uh i've been you know i wrote once again i wrote a chapter on the birds for yeah, the book, sure. and as you will see and and it's mostly about birds we don't eat you know <laughs> kind of thing and uh so it's uh, it, it's an amazing place the butterflies the yeah, sure. you know the lizards the frogs the, everything that's there is just it is breathtaking to see the place.
0: It is. It's amazing how wildlife management, and paid for by hunters, as you mentioned, does that. But years ago, when I was a wildlife biologist in the southern part of the state of Texas, I set up management programs on uh, private properties, pretty much all over the southern half of Texas. And one of the things that we did is. We had some of the really nice hunting camp facilities that were being utilized pretty much only maybe a week or two during the summertime when somebody came in to fish or then during the hunting season. And as a means to try to uh, at least play for the electricity, we started bringing in bird watching groups. And it worked out absolutely fantastic because it gave us then the opportunity to express to them why these birds are here. And it's just what you mentioned. It's because the the fact that the landowner was receiving money for the deer hunting and the, the bird hunting, that uh, really improve the habitat and it it turned a few people around and and i think the more we can do those kind of things whether it's in africa or here in the states or you know anywhere where there's a good management program going on it's a really good way to promote hunting and and have people have a little bit better understanding why hunting is so very important to the habitat and to the overall scheme of wildlife and any kind of particular type of habitat but uh the, the lions are, are, to me, I've listened to them roar. There is there is something that, oh, my gosh, I can remember in several hunting camps, particularly there in the Save laying there at, in bed at night, and those lions would be roaring off in the distance, and, and sometimes they were coming really close to camp. There's something about that lion this very primal kind of thing. I, I, I don't really have the right proper terms to describe it, but there's something special about them, isn't it?
3: Boy, there really is, and you know, I, I just—they're the apex predator. They know they're
1: the apex predator.
3: (laughs) I mean, they're eating the other predators, you know. So they, you know, they even do that. So it is, it is true. They are. It's just a magnificence, and to see, you know, Katata 11 just have the kind of population increase in this amazing species, uh, and it's all built up. You know, they, they couldn't do that at the very first because they didn't have enough name no, for no. the lions to predate, but now they do. And, you know, they have just a wealth of reed bucks and everything else, warthogs that these guys are, these guys are chewing on. But they, yeah, it is, they are just unbelievable. Now, I will say we had a Bush barbecue, okay, yes. one night to celebrate and the Cabellas were all there and, they they were bringing over cheetahs and and so we were oh. they were there for that exercise as well and so we had a bush barbecue well after the fact now you know you, you may drink a beer or two at a bush barbecue and Possibly. if you're out in the bush <laughs> there are no porta potties no. so after the fact the next morning we were informed that three male lions had been pacing around watching us all. Uh, visit the bush port-a-potty the whole night, and I thought, well, that wouldn't have been interesting at all. <laughs> so there are, you know, they, they are, they're all over the place there. They're just wonderful animals. So they really are. I mean, they're dangerous, but they're wonderful animals.
0: Mike, how do we get more operations such as what Mark Haldane and his bunch have done in, in different parts of Africa?
3: Well, they're, they are franchising, uh, is what I would call it, franchising their type of operation. They're actually about to take over another uh, hunting concession. This one is in the south, uh, south of uh, Katata 11. It's in the dry tropics. It's called Katata 4. Yes, yeah, Uh Completely decimated. Uh, there's illegal logging going on. There's hardly any animals there. The species that would be there are very different. You're talking about giraffes, kudus. You know, so your dry land. You have been to Africa. Your yeah, dry sure. land species. So they're they're looking at that um, as an operation they're going to move into. But they're also they're also not wanting to own all of the franchises. Now they would. Mark would have control along with Carlos would have control of C4 and they would have it you know they'll get a 20-year or whatever concession on it just like they did um, to start with for C11 but what they are also doing are in negotiations with other hunting concessions and they're going to donors and saying we want to provide for these other hunting concessions our model we want to be able to have the helicopters have the community outreach have whatever it is you know the schools the clinics and so what they're really trying to do now is to spread this now that's still in mozambique but to spread this even to other countries where it would make sense um and that's what they're doing right now so that's how uh, there are different models i'm writing on a second book right now and there are very you know because you've been to Savi, there are very different models that are there that are effective models different from what mark has done for example that work. South Africa has a certain kind of model. Yes, you know, Namibia has a certain kind of model. The conservancy, you know, a community owned conservancies and things like that. So there's there are different models that will work. But in terms of spreading Marx's model, they are they are in the process of doing that right now.
0: That, that's fantastic. I've, I've spent a fair amount of time in Namibia. I went there years ago and absolutely fell in love. We were talking before we started about around the abilene area and i spent a lot of time in south texas and west texas and to me it was like going home and of course the people were absolutely fantastic <laughs> i knew that everything was there to either grab you bite you stick you or something else <laughs> <laughs> and i loved that part of that part of it and uh just uh, spent a lot of time there and, and all the way from up in what used to be called the a strip now i think it zambezi all the way down to the very lower part spent a bunch of time on the desert as well too and t- to me yes they're 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 they have some great conservancy set up there and they're doing an excellent job there as well too but there that's a totally different circumstance compared to what you have in mozambique and some of the other countries so i'm really tickled to hear that mark and his guys are, are planning on doing this or are, i'm assuming already starting to do this
3: they are and they're in negotiations with the folks who, you know, have the concessions in the Katata's next to them obviously cuz they're, you know, I mean they are their friends and and you know collaborators and colleagues they move back and forth and if someone has more of one species than another they'll drop, you know, let the other folks come in and hunt and that sort of thing Mark does the same thing in Katata 11 with with some of the little guys so some of those pygmy antelope but also like i say, you know the the Mozambique government Came to Mark and said, We have a black rhino and white rhino reintroduction in the Zanabe, which is down south of this Katata Four. Yes. We need Katata Four to be a buffer zone so that it's protected this this area yes, where the rhinos yes. have been introduced protected but we need it developed so the government is well aware of of the value that mark and his and his colleagues like dan cabela and others bring to the table not just money but boots on the ground and insight and passion and that they'll get it done they the government trusts them that they'll get this done where C4 in 20 years, you know, Katata 4 in 20 years, Larry, I bet you any amount of money it's going to look just like Katata 11, different species, but just be so darn game rich. It's just going to be amazing.
0: You you mentioned some of the small antelope, antelope, if you will, or uh, dikers. Uh, Obviously, uh, from your book, I saw the photographs and read just a little bit. You kind of like those as well, too. (laughs)
3: <laughs> i guess i pick on little people i don't know <laughs> what the deal is but i sure i've gotten nine there's a there's a a category called the tiny ten. tiny ten nine, yes nine of the ten of them now and, and my brother gives me a hard time because he's gotten the other ten and he said i'll sell it to you <laughs> so i told him no I, I gotta go get it myself but uh but anyway yeah i really because they're so tough to hunt Yes. because they're in these noisy areas they're in dark areas they're in and they're so alert i mean they are it's white-tailed deer hunting on steroids uh, on steroids that's a good description yeah. yes sir and i i just i love love hunting them i really <laughs> do they they're they're uh they're a fascination like
0: Stuff for me anyway. I, I perfectly understand. I, I, I've been very fortunate. I've hunted a lot of different things in Africa from the biggest down to uh, the small ones. And I, I dearly love like the little Dammerland Dick Dick and the little Blue oh, Diker yeah. and, and those. And, of course, Steenbuck has, has been one of my favorites ever since the first time I saw one. I, I, it's kind of like Kudu. I, if if they're Kudu in the area and if they're Steenbuck in there, area, I'm going to spend a fair amount of time hunting Steenbuck probably more than I do anything else. <laughs> There, there. Well, see,
3: I don't like you either. I don't like my brother either. That's the one I'm missing. Oh, you're... The most common one. Don't laugh at me. No, I I'm just, not. You know, I had an opportunity to shoot one, and I didn't. I thought, nah, I'll do that later. <laughs> God, it's <laughs> the one I'm missing. It's driving me crazy.
0: <laughs> I, I thought you were going to tell me one of the really, really weird ones that you don't hardly ever see, and that never would have dreamed of being the stand, but that is one of my favorite things to hunt over there. And uh, I, I I, right now, I don't really have any plans of going back, but it, there, there are two things I would go back for. One is to just be there to hunt Cape Buffalo or be around somebody hunting Cape Buffalo or to go back and hunt a stand buck.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I understand. They, they really are fun.
0: Mike, you're getting ready to go back to Africa, and I just want you to mention that because once you get back, I'd like to have you back on and let's talk about what that trip was all about. But uh, I know you're headed that way in, just in the next few days.
3: Yeah, a week from uh, actually a week from tomorrow, I head to Maputo uh, in Mozambique. I don't get to hunt on this trip, darn it, but this I was invited to come across uh, to the SCI. Uh, AWCF, so it's a forum, a conservation forum where they bring in government officials from all, lots of different countries. I don't have a list yet. They haven't sent me an organizational list yet, but all across South Africa, especially, and they're getting together, and they discuss the whole idea that SCI set that this is their twentieth year, actually, twentieth uh, meeting. So they set this forum, these forums up so that they can interact with the governments and try to understand how to help. Hunting and promote hunting in Africa as well as around the world. So I'm going there. I've uh, been asked to write up uh, news and views for Perfect. sports field on that as when I get back. So I'll be working on that on the plate on flying <laughs> back. Hopefully I'll get that on that 17 hour flight. Yeah,
0: yeah you um, have a lot of time.
3: Um, <laughs> but that's what. What we're going to be doing. It's a week long forum, and I'm really looking forward to it. Mark Haldane is speaking, a number of different outfitters are speaking, and then obviously uh, African government officials are going to be speaking as well. So I'm really looking forward to interacting with folks and just learning. You know, Larry, you were talking about learning. I mean, learning what are the concerns? You know, what are they? Yes. Because the governments there are being pushed around, or at least. Uh, our government here and in Europe and various places are trying to push them around, trying to make them stop hunting. You know, stop trophy hunting in some cases and that sort of thing. And there, these government officials are having to have a lot of courage to say no, no. This is this is our resource, and we're managing that resource incredibly well. And we should be rewarded for it, not punished. So, so I'm anyway. I'm probably preaching to the choir a little bit, but anyway, that's that's what I'm looking
0: forward to. I, I think it's so great. One of my favorite little uh, photographs that floats around on Facebook, and I don't spend a lot of time there at all, but shows a, a group of Africans sitting around a campfire, and they're saying, "Now, what I think we ought to do with white-tailed deer in North America is," <laughs> and to me, that is so apropos in so many different ways because we, here we have all these folks who know better yet have never been there, have no concept about what's going on, making policies yeah. sometime and and that to me is one of the very important reasons that we have like DSC and SCI and other organizations as well too that yep. that uh, we've got to kind of be the watchdog on some of these and then we got to try to figure out how do we educate these people so they have a little bit better understanding about the real world particularly what's going on over in Africa because to me what What happens in Africa now is something that we'll have to face here in North America in the future and the way things are going. So uh, if we can change people's minds at least a little bit to be a little bit more open-minded at times and let uh, true science prevail as opposed to hysterics, if you will, uh, it's going to make a lot of difference in the future. And not so much just for us as hunters and outdoor people, but more importantly, I think for the wildlife that's there and and the habitat that's there.
3: Absolutely. I agree. I couldn't agree with you more. We really and I really think of the demographics of one of my friends was asking me, what do you think about folks within North America? Are they anti hunters? Mostly? And I said no. I, I, I said I'm a professor, so I'm gonna think of it in terms of a graph. So I said on the left hand I'm not trying to be political here, Larry. No, no, on the I left understand. Left hand side of that bell shaped curve, you're gonna have a, you know, you're gonna have a proportion that are anti hunters. On the right hand side you have passionate hunters like you and me. Yes. And we're always going to be that. In the center and most of the folks are gonna be like my wife, who is a non hunter but she's not an anti-hunter. She loves going out on safaris. She loves taking photographs. She loves doing videos, uh, videography. She loves being in the field, but she doesn't have any desire to hunt. And I said, those, if we can change the minds, that's the reason I wrote this book, is to reach non hunters and hunters with the message that you and I already know, which is hunting conserves and hunting improves people's lives uh, in terms of the local folks. And so if we can reach that main i think of it as the main number of or the majority of the folks in north america i think we can actually change minds and they'll go oh okay i see how this works well then hunting isn't you know uh detrimental or negative or whatever it's a uh, sport and it really actually has helped so that's That's what I why I wrote that that book. Actually,
0: I'm I'm so glad that you did. I I do want to tell you that I think you pretty well described my wife with a few exceptions, because she grew up in a hunting family. She doesn't hunt, but she loves venison. She loves you know everything associated with it, and has a has a greater understanding of it. And then you mentioned the term conserve. Conserve means the wise use thereof, and it doesn't mean preservation or anything like that. Yes, we want to preserve the habitat, but we want to improve it, and we want to improve the wildlife populations where we can as well too and and that of course equates to a a higher standard of living if you will or a higher quality of life as far as we humans are concerned so thank you so much for doing the book i I haven't had a chance to read the entirety of it yet i've been on a traveling schedule that's ridiculous but uh uh, i'm looking forward to finishing the book and and tell people how where can they get your book and how can they get in touch with you should they wish to get in touch with you as well too
3: Absolutely. Well, it, it, the my email address is mike at mikearnoldoutdoors dot com. Okay, and that's in the book. So yes. they can. They can if they have a copy of the book. But it's mike at mikearnoldoutdoors dot com, and mikearnoldoutdoors.com dot com is just they can go to the website. But the book, if they type in bringingbackthelions.com with no spaces, it'll take them to the page that uh, on my website that they can purchase a copy of the book and we'll get it shipped out to them immediately and um, so that's how bringingbackthelions.com that's how they can get a hold of it
0: Absolutely fantastic book. Even even if you're not a hunter, and and if you're not a hunter, I would strongly suggest that you read this book because it'll give you a much better understanding about the real world, if you will. But Mike, I, I hate to cut this any any long. Well, we got to kind of I got a trip I got to leave for here in just a little bit, unfortunately, <laughs> and and I know you have got to get ready for uh, returning back to uh, or returning to Africa. So I just want to tell you how very proud and honored I am to, for you to have joined us around the camp. Fire this morning
3: oh thank you so much larry i'm i'm honored to be able to be here mike thank you so very much
0: we'll get you back about the time give me a call when you get back and let's sit down and let's talk about how that uh, gathering of, of minds went
3: i uh, will definitely do that
0: larry thank you Well, you have a safe trip. Look forward to visiting with y'all. You later, when you get back, and look forward to visiting with all of our our listeners once uh, we return to the campfire next week. Thank y'all so very much for joining us. Thanks for joining us around the campfire. To leave a comment or suggestion for an upcoming episode, go to Instagram at Larry Wysoon Outdoors. Please join me right here next week for another DSC's Campfire.
2: DSC's Campfires with Larry Wisoon has also been brought to you by The Crown Bar in LaGrange, Texas H3 Whitetail Solutions Remington Texas Wildlife Association TRHP Outdoors